Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. The United States was founded on some lofty ideals, including anti-imperialism. As a former colony, this makes perfect sense, but as an American country that saw expansion as its destiny, it was inevitable that sooner or later it would begin exerting its will on its neighbors in a number of ways. So how did the United States go from a small, isolationist former colony to a superpower that felt free to meddle in Latin America's domestic affairs? Let's begin. Here on HI101 with Scott Weaver. Hey. And uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, the United States in Latin America, which is a topic I've always really been uh, like very interested in. It's very rich. There's a lot of stuff going on there. I actually took a full uh, uh, course on it at one point because really? there is that much that goes into it. Yeah. So uh, more, more, than, more than many topics will be kind of hand-waving our way past uh, a couple of really complicated, uh, in-depth things that we could probably spend a lot more time on than we're actually going to. But right. I sort of want to move through and get like a, a top-down view of all the times that the United States has kind of gotten their fingers in that particular pie, because it happens a lot, right? It's kind of a, a cliche thing. You know, you look at the Cold War, like, you know, CIA coups in you know, CIA-backed coups in, in Central America yeah, and all totally. of that stuff, right? But I kind of want to look at how we get there because when things start off, you know, early independence in the United States in a lot of ways looks fairly uh, uh, similar to early independence in Latin America. And so, you know, this, this sort of strange power dynamic that comes out of it isn't necessarily uh, preordained. It's, it's, it's not something that is, is guaranteed from the outset. So it's kind of like, how do we get there? How do we get to that, you know, dropping, cocaine sale backed weapons into Nicaragua and you know, all of that stuff. <laughs> um, so specifically, I want to focus on uh, just that, that, that involvement, not like a comprehensive history of Latin America or a comprehensive history of the United States. Both of those things are, are wildly out of the scope of what we can do in a couple of shows. Right. But, you know, specifically the, the, the interaction between the two. We'll be calling it Latin America specifically, because while it's not the most uh, perfect terminology for what we're talking about, there isn't really a better one. We can't necessarily say South America because we're also talking about Central America. We're also Mm -hmm. talking about Mexico, which is North America. We're talking about the Caribbean. Um, You know, we're also not talking about necessarily as much involvement in, for example, uh, Jamaica, which would be a British colony for a lot of this time. Right. So even though it's part of the Caribbean, it's not really part of quite the same dynamic, Mm -hmm. at least for a lot of our story. 
and then also there's us in Canada just sitting up here minding our own business. Yeah, yeah. I, I doubt we have much to do with it. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, for the most part, um, not actively at the very least. Right. Um, but yeah, we're not really considered in the in, in a lot of the dynamics that are at play here. So um, I'll make sure to mention it when we are. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the other thing I wanted to mention just before we get started is kind of the elephant in the room in terms of like timeliness of this topic. Mm specifically everything that's going on uh, in Bolivia right now, right? Mm. Things are a mess down there. That isn't why we're doing this topic today. I just wanted to get that out of the way. This is a this is an evergreen topic. There is always something going on in Latin America, often not in a good way. And uh, in a lot of cases, there is either directly or indirectly some United States involvement. Now, right. obviously, you can't say that every single time, but you'll notice that the trend kind of swings in that general direction, right? right. There's, there's, there's so much history of, of, uh, intervention there that, uh, it's, it's hard to, uh, avoid entirely when talking about current events in Latin America. So yeah, this isn't, this isn't because of what's happening right now in Bolivia. It's just that we could have done this topic literally any time and pointed to something in the news, in the headlines that, that could have been relevant. So right. all the more reason I think to, uh, to talk about it. Right. Final thing, anytime I do a, a U.S. history topic, I get accused of being anti-American. <laughs> I'm, I'm not. Just just wanted to say so at the outset. Um, none of the stuff we're talking about here is controversial or uh, particularly contested. If it is contested in any way, I'll mention it. Right. This is just stuff that the United States has done in its history. This is not like a smear job. So just right. anyways, that out of the way, let's uh, let's get into it. We basically need to, I think, look at a history of Latin America uh, as a Spanish colony before we get too much further. Because, like, I'm guessing you have, like, a fairly reasonable sense, at least at a kind of bird's eye level, of, like, U.S. history in terms of, like, what was a British colony and then declared mm. independent. Like, you know, like, all the major beats, right? I've been listening to Hamilton a lot, so sure. uh, I'm basically an expert in that now. Basically yeah. an expert. Perfect. We will be talking about the Federalist Papers at some Perfect. point, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I would imagine that equally, if I was to ask you for those similar beats about anywhere in Latin America, it would probably not go as well. No. No. That's not an uncommon thing. Right. It's, uh, uh, you know, we, we get very hung up on certain portions of the world in our, in our, uh, history education and Latin America does not tend to be one of those places, right? It's sort of, uh, left off to one side. It's a footnote in other people's stories, which mm -hmm. is extremely unfair. So let's, let's go over like the very bird's eye view stuff, right? This all starts as a lot of these stories start with, um, Columbus 1492. I'm not a fan. Everyone knows this. <laughs> um, you know, but but it is it is a Spanish hired explorer that discovers the new world in sort of that impactful way that, you know, starts that rush for the new world, right? And one of the first thing that happens after Columbus's discovery is in 1494, so just 2 years later, the Spanish and Portuguese crowns go to the Pope and basically say we want to split the entire world between us. <laughs> um, at this point, you know, a lot of this uh, exploration has been prompted by um, the fall of uh, uh, Constantinople and the cutoff of the, uh, the Silk Road, right? So everybody's trying to find that trade route to the east. Mm. And while Spain's started sending these uh, expeditions across the sea, Portugal, Portugal has been working for the past 50 years to find a route south around Africa and into the Indian Ocean. Right. And they have all these, these uh, trade routes set up, basically. And 
the Portuguese and the Spanish go to the crown and go, basically, we're going to draw a line uh, vertically through the Atlantic Ocean. And everything to the east of it belongs to Portugal and everything to the west of it belongs to Spain. And uh, the, the Pope agrees to this. It's the Treaty of Tordesillas. And by virtue of that, for, for a very long time, actually, that everything to the west is just free game for the spanish and they really take advantage of it right so there are very quickly rumors that there is uh, a massive amount of wealth in the new world uh rumors that are quickly taken advantage of by um some less savory types uh one of the most famous being hernan cortez right who uh ends up in mexico and uh, defeats the aztecs in 1521 just completely overthrows a a massive civilization. Right. Uh, the the Inca are likely are are likewise overthrown in 1533, and there's this period in the 16th century of Spanish conquistadors going through the New World and just toppling every organized political entity that already exists there in pursuit of wealth. And there's also the stated goal of, uh, you know, civilizing the people that they find there, which right. for them means converting them. So, yes, there's material gain to this. There's also like a, a population gain. Um, Spanish conquests, you know, on, often we think about conquest in like a very British way, which is like take as much land as you can get. Right. Mm-hmm. Spanish want to also conquer people. And so what you get in, in Latin America, uh, more so than you would get in, in, uh, North America or even, even, you know, the, the French parts of North America is this attempt to Spanishize. I'm searching for a better word than that, but, uh, trying to make all the people here, Spanish subjects. Mm -hmm. And that involves like a cultural assimilation, right? So there's forced, uh, language, there's forced religion, things like that. And very quickly they start, uh, intermarrying with the indigenous populations, Interesting. Whereas yeah. like the English basically just displaced yeah. as opposed to yeah, converted. Exactly. Yeah. And again, this is a very like broad, like oh, waving you know, those hands. thematic. Totally. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, it doesn't always work exactly this way in every place, but yeah, they're, they're, they're looking to, um, sort of, uh, absorb these, these people. Right. Uh, there's actually a word for people of both, uh, uh, Spanish and indigenous descent that gets used quite a bit. It's, uh, uh, mestizos. Um, and to this day, a lot of people in Latin America have indigenous um, heritage at some point in their in their ancestry. With this conquering comes uh, a lot of death and destruction, um, some of it through direct military action, a lot more through unintentional, for the most part, disease warfare. Uh, these populations are exposed to smallpox and mm-hmm. cholera, all sorts of uh, measles, especially uh, all sorts of diseases that they just have absolutely no resistance to whatsoever. And uh, the numbers range on this, but a, a fairly common estimate is between 85 and 90 percent of the population wiped out by disease. Wow. Much of it before they even see a, a European it travels right. so quickly. So. You know that sort of helps to destabilize all these populations and, and helps the uh, the Spanish to sort of impose their own uh, political systems on this fairly wide area. As they're exploring, they discover. Remember that that line through the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Um, they discover that the line actually cuts through South America, and uh, to the east of it is what we would now call Brazil, right. which is why Brazil today is is Portu- uh, Portuguese speaking, oh. not Spanish speaking. Yeah, it's it's a Portuguese uh, colony. Right. Yeah. Got to abide by the the treaty, right? (laughs) When all of these colonies start off, like they don't find a lot of gold in, I mean, there, there is gold, but they find a lot more silver 
in in Latin America, and they start mining that like immediately. Mm-hmm. Like, let's get this out of here. They also start planting uh, agriculture because remember that what they were looking for from the from the east when they were doing this exploration was mainly luxury goods, right? Like they're trying to get to China or India or wherever because that's where you get. Uh, spices mainly right, right? Yeah. and it's kind of like well we can just grow our own here the climate is right so they start kind of planting these uh luxury goods right. and at first they start using indigenous populations as uh slave labor but what they find is that number one they really aren't very uh obedient slaves for some reason who knows <laughs> why right uh and and the other is that there's they're so sick all the time that they can't really rely on them oh, wow. for good strong labor and so they start importing slaves from Africa and this is the beginning of the transatlantic slave trade. Mm. Lots um, of good things came of this. Oh yeah, oh, no, boy. we're we're gonna cover a couple of topics today. <laughs> Did I not warn you about this? Sorry, Scott. <laughs> yeah, no, this is the beginning of the the transatlantic trade is for growing luxury goods in the Caribbean mainly. Right. Yeah, you you can't really talk about the economy of North America at this point in time without talking about the economy of Latin America as well. Because mm-hmm. it, uh, have you heard of the, the the term like the triangle slave trade? No. Um, so the idea is, I've seen a couple of versions of this. There's uh, one version is that the uh, what you would see is slaves being exported from Africa to the Caribbean, sort of raw materials. So like things like sugar is the main one that you'll see, but mm. also uh, other luxury goods like coffee chocolate will be grown in the in the new world uh sent to europe as as raw materials and in europe they'll be processed into like finished goods and those will be uh sold and the profits taken to africa to buy new slaves right Mm, so europe to africa to the caribbean to europe to africa there's another version of this which kind of cuts out europe to some extent which is basically the um and, and this doesn't come up out until there's more uh English, uh, basically settlements in North America, but you have the sugar going to the new world where it's being made into rum, for example, Mm. that rum being taken to Africa and used to buy new slaves to bring to the Caribbean. And there's your other triangle. The point being, you know, anytime you look at colonialism in this period, what you're looking at is intentionally setting up a very advantageous trade relationship with another place, like an exploitative trade relationship that is designed entirely to funnel wealth back to the home city, like the the metropole is what they would call it. So if it's a Spanish colony, its entire purpose is to funnel wealth into Spain. And so if that means mining silver, that means that you have to mine that silver as cheaply as possible so that when it gets back to Spain, they can uh, maximize the, the value of that silver. Right. And that means slave labor. And so it's much cheaper to uh, purchase slaves and take them over and have them mine it than it is to uh, pay anyone in the, in the new world a fair mining wage, mm-hmm. essentially. So, yeah, it's... it's it, it's a rough subject. That's just how the economy in, in this section of the world works right. for several hundred years, though. I, I think it's a lot less about territory than I had kind of previously assumed. And it's it's interesting that it really is just about sucking money back to Europe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I think that's partially a, a product of our education to oh, be honest no doubt, with you yeah. uh, because and, and specifically a, a canadian education because when you hear 
like I don't I don't know what kind of impression you got from from your history classes, but I know for me at least, at the, you know, until much later on, the impression that I got was that countries like England or Spain went out and founded these like baby countries <laughs> yep, that will exactly. some, someday grow up to be adult countries and then you can set them free and let them you know move out and take the oldest couch in the house right <laughs> like that's but that's the impression that we get oh, because definitely, like yeah. the alternative of that is that like finding out that you know our country wouldn't exist if there hadn't been enough fur here for uh english traders to exploit for economic gain back in europe right which is the reality of the situation mm-hmm. and that you know, those profits also depend on, as you mentioned, like the displacement of indigenous people and, mm-hmm. and like really cruel trade practices and um, all of this stuff kind of stacks on top of each other. Right. But it's all about funneling it back. Yeah. It doesn't work without it. A big turning point for all of the Americas. So Latin and, and uh, North America is in 1759 with the Seven Years War. This is the one that uh, we would mostly see in school about turning New France over to uh, the English, right? Like this right. is the one where where France loses the battles in in North America, and they're they're out of North America forever, except these two little islands where they fish off of. Remember all of that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Except that's not actually true. They're not gone. What they do is at the peace treaties at the end of the Seven Years' War, the French are basically given an option. They can either keep New France, uh, which is what we would talk about mostly in in Canadian history, mm-hmm. or they can keep their holdings in the Caribbean. Now. New France wasn't as profitable as it used to be. Mm-hmm. And it was very dangerous because it's right beside English territory. The Caribbean, on the other hand, is pumping out massive amounts of money because all the French holdings in the Caribbean are these very like intense plantation economies built around processing coffee and chocolate and most importantly, sugar, right. which needs a very tropical environment. And more than like a lot of cash crops needs economies of scale. Like if you're in the new world and you're trying to grow tobacco, for example, to send back, Mm -hmm. you can be like a small farmer and grow some tobacco and make a cash crop off of that. Right. The way that sugar cane gets processed, the more people you have working on it, the more money you're going to make. Like you need a a fair, fair amount of machinery for like an 18th century Mm, industry, right? Which means like a big initial investment, which means that the more you can keep it running, the more money you're going to make off of it. And so if you don't have the money for like a mill, which is what grinds up the, the, the sugar cane and Mm -hmm. and kind of separates out the, the juices and basically enough money for that and for about 50 slaves or so you're not really maximizing the amount of money you could be making off of it you're probably losing a lot of money and it's not really worth your time Mm -hmm. so instead of trying to keep new france alive up in in uh uh north america they decide well we're just going to focus on these few islands where we're making a ton of money we'll let the english worry about i think they they derisively call it like a few acres of snow at some point um which you know right all right fair not not wrong (laughs) (laughs) um but you know that's that's where they decide to to really focus in um yeah i mean france had gotten into the game in 1534 england had gotten in 1607 but this is all like really far north by the time they're showing up spain had such a head start that they 
owned most, uh, like all of South America, except mm. for Brazil and like a good chunk of North America. By 1800, Spain owns like all the way up to Alaska is the furthest north that they come on the West oh, Coast. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And and at the end of the 17 years, or sorry, at the end of the Seven Years War, um, when France pulls out of uh, uh, North America, like we just talked about, they sell all of their land west of the Mississippi to Spain. So Spain has like two thirds of North America, essentially, in addition to all of Central America and most of South America. Right. The amount of territory that they own in this period is unprecedented. It is enormous. Essentially, the only other powers are Portugal and Brazil and uh, Britain and the 13 colonies, as well as like a few Caribbean little holdings here and there. Mm. The Dutch have some islands and a little bit of land. The right. French still have some. British still have some. But uh, yeah, that kind of brings us to the American War of Independence, right? 1776. Mm-hmm. You want to do a wrap quick? Or? I, I, I know all about that one now. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the main things to go over, like we're not going to sit here and talk about the War of Independence. There's that that either you breeze over it or you do it all as, as its own thing, right? There's yeah. too much going on. But the point being that like the sentiments that drive the independence movement here are a feeling or at least an expression of a feeling of exploitation by Britain, right? It's that economic exploitation that we were kind of gesturing to earlier um, is, you know, we're, we're not being treated as full British citizens, even though we're supposed to be, we're being subjected to, uh, unfair or uh, uneven economic uh, conditions. Mm-hmm. And Britain's going like, yeah, of course you are. You're a colony. That's what you're here for, right? <laughs> and and there's a bit of a mismatch there, right? But it's anti-British. It's anti-European uh, in nature, the, the revolt that is. It's anti-imperialist. So there's a specific like anti-imperial, like we will not stand for colonialism. Like there is a, you know, an enlightenment era, gesturing towards like you know the fundamental rights of the human being and uh self-determination and all of Mm -hmm. these like very like noble sounding uh issues but a lot of what what it comes down to is like i don't think it's fair that somebody that is a six week uh uh, ship voyage away gets to call the shots when i have no power myself right? right the other kind of awkward thing that goes along with all these enlightenment ideals is that the united states is very much dependent on slavery for its economic success at this point in time, at least uh, most of the southern states. Mm -hmm. And even the northern states that are um, not directly dependent on it benefit from it in some way because they're likely buying raw materials from the Caribbean, uh, which have been produced by slave labor. So it's kind of an awkward spot to be in. It's one of those things that, you know, the founding fathers of the United States, some of them actually acknowledge themselves, but mm-hmm. you know, this is, this is the United States at its outset. Right. And so it has this sort of shaky, uh, relationship with Latin America where it's like, well, we have to trade with somebody. Britain's not willing to trade with us. France is on like terrible, uh, shaky legs at the moment. France has been in trouble since the, since the seven years war. Uh, they keep taking out loans. It's a whole thing. It's going to turn into a French Revolution very soon. Right. But like, while they did aid the United States in their War of Independence, they did so at like the expense of their own economy. In, in in a lot of ways, that was one of the one of the final nails in the coffin for monarchist France. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, well, we can't really depend on the French that much, but 
who we can look to for a trading partner is Latin America. Now, Spain didn't necessarily love that. They wanted Spanish colonies trading only with Spain, but right. like, what are they going to do about it? That's right. kind of what it comes yeah. down to, right? <laughs> um, there's a lot of smuggling back and forth from the United States to especially the Caribbean. Mm. And, you know, at this point in, in its history, the United States is on like pretty shaky ground, right? Mm. Like they've just been through a, a war of succession, which is really unprecedented in world history, at least in Western history, where it's kind of like, what do you mean you're just leaving? You can't just leave, right? Mm. And and they have to found it in all these like very like highfalutin philosophical ideals because like that's the only backing they really have a lot of other power structures at this point in time are based in you know divine right and things like that's that right. yeah there's no king of the united states no yeah. and, and in fact it was something that was discussed at the beginning was like well will people even understand a government that doesn't have a king right right and and it was like a, a it was very much like a risk that the uh, founding fathers took to say like no we're going to make this a republic a democracy you know there's some rolling things back because they don't entirely trust the electorate things like that but yeah, yeah. you know but it but it is a brand new thing that's happening you know the constitution is a brand new thing that's happening people didn't have constitutions back then it wasn't really a thing right right and it's interesting it's it's something i, I want to kind of keep in mind as we talk a little more today uh because one question that I'm, I'm not sure anyone really has a great answer to is what's the difference and this is something I want you to think on as we go through. What's the difference between uh, civil war and war of independence? What's the difference between a revolution and a rebellion? Right? Mm -hmm. Because there, there's a lot of really fuzzy edges here, right? Right. And I, I think any responsible answer to that question, probably somewhere in it, involves the word context right like there's there's some there's some level of like perspective there's some level of context there's some level of like it depends like why why is it happening who's doing it who wins who loses right mm -hmm. all of that stuff really you know kind of kind of blends into all of this but it's a question we're going to come back to a couple more times and that perspective and that context is going to be really important as we go through as I sort of gestured to uh, not that long ago, the French will have a revolution in 1789, and this throws Europe into all sorts of chaos, because it's one thing to have an uppity colony decide to call themselves independent, whatever, they're going to be coming crawling back anytime anyways. It's another to have one of the most, uh, one of the oldest, best established, most centralized monarchies in Europe overthrown by the rabble which right. is kind of how this is seen by the rest of Europe, right? And again, a topic that could easily be its own uh, discussion, so we're going to kind of breeze right through. But one of the things that comes up very early on in the French Revolution is the Declaration of the Rights of Man, which is this sort of, again, grand expression of uh, Enlightenment ideals, you know, people created equally, uh, people imbued with unalienable rights, a lot of stuff that they've actually taken cues from the United States on, right? Mm -hmm. And... They do something really interesting with that, which is extend all of these rights to their colonies. Now, after the Seven Years' War in 1759, France had gotten kind of autocratic or more autocratic about their colonies, specifically who fills what types of economic roles. They really kind of industrialized the whole colony thing. Mm. Um, you know, there's there's a, a great example is, is Haiti. Um, 
which, you know, before the, the Seven Years' War, yes, there were slaves, and yes, there were people who owned slaves, and yes, there were people who owned plantations, and all of this stuff happening, but there were also uh, people in Haiti who were uh, black and free, and that was not really an issue. And a lot of the sort of stratification of, of uh, uh, society depended a lot more on your economic status than it did necessarily on the color of your skin. Right. And that all really changes after the Seven Years' War. A lot of that stuff gets really hard codified mm. into uh, the the Haitian system where it's like there are like books with tables of like percentages of like if you have so many grandparents this color and so many grandparents that color you are officially this designation and it means this for your your civil rights oh, wow. and it got like very very uh oppressive mm -hmm. and and that's kind of a wild thing to say about a, a situation a society that was already based on slave labor um but it, they, they really cracked down and so when the french revolution comes and this universal declaration of the rights of man comes out it was kind of like wait maybe this means really good things for uh for for haiti now i know we're not talking about spain at this point but the reason that we're talking specifically about haiti is that like haiti was really volatile their society was 10 to 1 slaves to free people it was a powder keg and again it was six weeks away from the rest of france now when france was in good shape they could afford to police that island and make sure everything was in good shape but when they start switching governments every six months and trying to decide whose heads to chop off um you know looking after something in the you know a colony in the in the in the caribbean suddenly becomes mm. less important right Things start to slip yeah a little bit we tend in in canada at least to talk about chattel slavery in the context of the south of the united states right you know the cotton fields and things mm. like that and we tend to get a sort of sense of what working conditions and living conditions are like in that situation and i i bring all of that up because it is absolutely nothing compared to when you read about what it's like to work on a sugar plantation they were so much more brutal than anything that ever happened in the United States. Really, it is is absolutely sickening. Um, yeah, I mean, you would have sugar boiling in like big open vats, like over open flames, and people had sugar burns all the time. Which boiling sugar going on you is oh, a thing that you can very can't easily, imagine it would be yeah at all pleasant. <laughs> Likewise, the mills that were grinding up the sugar mm. cane, like slaves were very frequently missing fingers or even limbs right. just from the you know lack of safety surrounding any of that uh the the work gang leaders were especially brutal things like that and what's more in in haiti uh most of the people who own these plantations don't actually live in haiti they live in france and this is just an investment that they're sitting on right so the the other thing that's a little bit different about haiti than what you would see in the united states is that it was so brutal there that very few uh, slaves were actually born into slavery. Most uh, died before they had any children, so they just were continually importing slaves. And so instead of having sort of a, you know, similar to the United States, like a, a sort of diaspora of, of people who were born in the United States as slaves and have kind of lost or, or 
lost touch, I was going to say, but uh, been separated from any sort of uh, African heritage in any way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. These are people who know where they're from. They have no interest in being here. They've probably been captured and forced into this and tend to be much more likely to uh, uh, act up against Mm. uh, their oppressors. So in 1791, word comes in from France that yeah, that Declaration of Rights of Man, that doesn't actually apply to the colonies, just to everybody FYI. Oh, man. And that's like, that's the last straw. Oh, yeah. There's this massive uprising, and over uh, the next 15 years or so, there are all sorts of battles, uh, led by a former black slave, Toussaint Louverture, is the is the most well-known leader. Uh they managed to organize and overthrow the leadership in Haiti, um, or Saint-Domingue, as it was called at that point. The French send some troops in kind of a lull between Napoleonic Wars just to sort of kind of calm things down. They immediately, like two-thirds of them, just get yellow fever and they're completely useless. So Haiti, the independence of Haiti, is actually the only uh, successful slave uprising in world history. Uh, really? Haiti, the independent state as it exists today, is born from a slave uprising. It's the only one that's ever succeeded and was not at some point put down. Right. And this, I tell you all of this because it terrified the United States. It yeah, no doubt. absolutely <laughs> terrified them. They had to make sure that nobody heard about this because the last thing that they wanted as slave owners was to find out or let their slaves find mm. out that this was possible right now the conditions were in no way shape or form the same as they were in haiti but that doesn't mean that they were interested in allowing this to to get out at all it was so bad that haiti doesn't actually get recognized by the united states as a legitimate nation until after the civil war right haiti is one of those every every time somebody brings up haiti it's like you know, by the way, the, the the fact that goes along with it is poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, right? Yeah, that's that's because like France made Haiti the independent nation, pay all the people in France back for the lost property, quote unquote, from these fl- slaves that have freed themselves through like through rebellion, through independence, wow, through revolts, right? And so again, this is one of those like revolt or rebellion, like you know, civil war or or independence like it's it's but it's the exact opposite narrative of what the united states wants to tell itself right it's the exact thing that it fears the most because it's still unable to support itself economically without without slave labor Mm -hmm. and it leads to a lot of kind of resentment of the caribbean in in u.s uh uh foreign policy at this point the united states can't really do anything about it they don't have a navy to speak of their uh, military isn't all that big but it's it it gnaws at them (laughs) and for very understandable reasons right interestingly enough the the uprising in haiti convinced napoleon who by the way had managed to uh, acquire the louisiana territory back from spain in 1800 because he was planning on making another go at a north american colony okay the uprising in Haiti lost him his footing in the Caribbean and basically made him decide that the the colonialism game was not for him and he would end up selling the Louisiana territory to the United States. It was the single biggest land purchase in US history. I'm sure you've heard all about Louisiana ter- uh, Louisiana purchase before, but yeah, there's yeah, there's yeah. a lot of there's a lot of states come out of that one. Right. 
it's also like the start of the United States thinking of itself as an expansionist uh, country, mm, right? Right. And there'd been people talking about it as an expansionist country for a very long time. But again, when it first starts out, there's no real mechanism by which they could start doing that. The Louisiana Purchase is the first real actual taste of it. Right. And, you know, when you start off with something that big, you kind of get a hunger. <laughs> Uh, the Napoleonic Wars have an effect on uh, the Spanish territories as well in, in the Americas, uh, specifically the fact that Napoleon spends several years in Spain driving towards the Atlantic Ocean, trying to push Portugal into the sea, I think is the <laughs> one saying that they use at one point. And it completely uh, uh, overthrows the Spanish monarchy. Uh, Napoleon was actually planning on putting his brother, uh, Joseph, I believe, in as a new king of Spain. And the colonies decided basically that rather than just kind of tacitly becoming part of Napoleon's empire, which is something they were not terribly interested in, uh, that they would sort of govern themselves as an interim measure mm. during these uh, during this fighting. So there's this massive wave of, of self-governance in 1809-1810 in Latin America, but the initial intent isn't necessarily independence. It's more like look after ourselves until we sort things out. Right. Right. They're still very much seeing themselves as Spanish territories. So they're not trying to be independent. They just kind of want to have something going on there. Yeah. They're thinking yeah. of themselves as like a government in exile. Kind right. Of thing. Right. But then uh, something really interesting happens, which is in 1812, Napoleon basically imposes a constitution on Spain, which opens up a lot of um, rights that the, uh, Latin American uh, colonists were not used to, and mm. they became very fond of. So they decided to adopt a lot of those things. But the uh, the hard truth of the thing is that like the majority of the wealth of Spain uh, for the last several centuries has been coming from the New World. Mm. Spain itself isn't that big, uh, and the sort of material wealth, like the mineral wealth and things like that, uh, had been exploited centuries and centuries before. It was, right you know, Roman mines and things like that had yeah. pulled all of that stuff out. So they kind of realized as they're governing themselves that they have a lot of resources here. And there was a lot of tension already in these colonies between uh, people who were born there, uh, known as Criollos, and the people who would come in and actually run the government, known as peninsulares, so from the peninsula, right? Mm. Um, and it was kind of like, well, why don't we take this opportunity to kind of start running the show ourselves a little bit, right? Then in 1814, uh, Spanish monarchy is restored under Ferdinand VII. And not only is he restored, which, you know, some of these independent territories are going, oh, great, we've got a king back. He also rolls things back prior to that constitution that everybody liked mm. cracks down on colonies very similar to what the french did in 1759 uh, and started really imposing like very restrictive rules on the new world mm. and a lot of these people who were really just kind of holding this territory for the king felt betrayed i think is, is fair to say and basically went well hang on we we tried to do you a solid here and this right. is how you repay us maybe we don't want to give all of this back to you, especially not more than we were already giving. And didn't Spain see what happened in Haiti and, and maybe take a cue from that? Or You know, Ferdinand VII was like a very reactionary, very uh, 
small C conservative, like let's get back to the way things mm. are supposed to be. I'm the king. I shouldn't need a constitution to rule. The fact that I'm appointed by God should be enough. Right. Like that type of old school, like royalist. Classic king stuff. Yeah. Classic yeah, yeah. king stuff. <laughs> you know, you know how it goes. Yeah. Um, and, and so, yeah, the, the, there's a lot of people who looked at the options in front of them, which was, a society which they currently control versus giving up all that control to a man across the sea who seems to have lost it a little bit. <laughs> and they went, actually, no. And so this all pivots to this big war of independence. Mm -hmm. One of the most famous leaders of which is uh, Simon Bolivar, uh, who is, I, I've seen him called like the George Washington of South America, which is complete garbage because he founded way more nations than George Washington did. <laughs> right. Um, you know, this, this turns into a, uh, a fight for independence. Um, the Spanish are sending troops basically all the way across the Atlantic. Uh, it takes them, you know, weeks and weeks to get here just to get to the continent. A bunch of them die of yellow fever and then all the Criollo armies descend on them and just finish off whoever's, whoever's left. And so over the course of Ferdinand's life, there's just this ongoing war of independence happening in South America. And again, at the risk of reducing a very complicated issue, by Ferdinand's death in 1833, the only territories that remain Spanish in the Americas are Puerto Rico and Cuba. Everything right. else has become independent. Um, not all exactly the form that we would think of them today. There's a lot of countries that are still going to break up or change borders, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, there's a lot of independent territory there, uh, including uh, the biggest one being Mexico, which at this point, remember, extends all the way up until like nearly to where Alaska starts. It's, oh, wow. it's uh, going to be pushed down by uh, the British and the Americans in the Oregon Territory. But, um, you know, all of uh, all of California, all of Texas, mm -hmm. that's all Mexico right now. Brazil also gains independence in 1822. It's uh, it's a slightly different story that's going on there. The, the the royal family had actually spent time in Brazil during the Napoleonic Wars. They kind of head out there. Right. And uh, when they returned to Portugal, uh, the regent of Brazil declared independence and there was a, a short independence war there. But, you know, again, in about the same time period, uh, 1822, it ended up uh, independent. Mm -hmm. So... Over a fairly short period of time, all things considered, the Americas, North and South America, go from entirely European uh, colonies to basically all that's left is a few Caribbean nations and Canada. Right. Like, that's about it. <laughs> the rest of it is, and I mean, it's a little reductionist, but mm. the rest of it's independent in some way, shape, or form. In 1823, President James Monroe declares what, what's known as the Monroe Doctrine, which is something you might have uh, come across before. It's this reaction to these independence movements. That anti-imperialist sentiment that we talked about sort of informed this uh, policy of, or this American policy of essentially saying, we're not going to mess with any current European territories in North and South America, but we will do everything that we can to prevent further European intervention into North or South America. Mm. The Americas are free and independent, and while we won't stop you from administering your current colonies, uh, we won't abide new colonies being formed in the Americas. Right. At that point, was there much territory left to make new colonies, or is it more about retaking colonies that had gone independent? 
I mean, the ownership, <laughs> the ownership of land is such a, <laughs> I realized how that sounded like two words into it, but uh, <laughs> no, the, the, the concrete answer there would be that there are enough disputed places where mm. something could be uh, claimed or enough small or weak uh, nations that could potentially be taken over Right. that, yeah, there is some risk of it. That being said, the United States is in no position at this point to do anything about it. So it's it's mainly a a statement of intent, right? Right. Britain supported it because independent nations work out well for them because they'll just trade with anybody at this point in time, right? Right. Like literally anybody. And so they're fine with all of this. You know, Spain doesn't like it, but what's Spain going to do anymore? Like they they weren't able to hold that territory. They kind of already lost. So they're unlikely to be able to take much more of it, right? That's right. But a lot of this Monroe Doctrine is pointed at them, right? It's like, hey, you've got your Cuba, you've got your Puerto Rico, be satisfied, stay out of here. This combines with this idea of manifest destiny, which again, I'm, I'm sure you've come across. It's this idea that comes up in American culture that like, they deserve this land. And it's kind of tied to that expansion into uh, the Louisiana territory, mm-hmm. right? But there's this, this sense that the United States is special in the world, right? Which... You know, t- to their credit, there there are some very special things about the founding of the United States. It's the first like new Western nation in a very very long time. Mm. It doesn't have that baggage of monarchy and all of that stuff. It's supposed to be different, right? Right. But the second part is that it's incumbent on the United States to sort of save the continent, right? Which has some kind of icky things underlying it, right? <laughs> like save who and save from what, right? I think it's not that hard to figure out, but um, yeah, it's this, this civilizing mission. And and finally, that this mission is both like inevitable and required. Like you need to do this. This isn't just like something that people maybe want, but it's something that America has to do. Mm. And so it starts rolling into like American foreign policy in this weird way. And th- these two things combining the sense of manifest destiny and this uh, practical policy of the Monroe Doctrine, right, excluding European territories, is, I don't know, it starts going to uh, the collective heads of the Americans that, that you know, that the place belongs to them a little bit. Right. And so I think this is probably a good place to take a break. Um, but when we come back, we're going to talk about what this sort of sense of destiny or how this sense of destiny shows up when the United States starts dealing with all these other new nations in its neighborhood. Back on HI101 here with Scott Weaver. Hey. And we've been talking, well, we, we covered a couple of centuries there, eh? It, now that I, I mean, think about it. Lots of hand-waving. I loved it. Lots of hand-waving. <laughs> um, that's okay. We'll start focusing in a little bit more on the second half uh, because we're kind of at a point where like the nuts and bolts uh, really start to matter, right. matter a little bit. I guess things are in place now for America to start doing things because now it exists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and running up against its neighbors a little bit, right. right? Like it got that Louisiana purchase and loves it. But, you know, what's on the other side of the Louisiana purchase? Right. It's more New Spain or or it's not Spain anymore. It's it's Mexico now. But right. It's a lot of uh, it's a lot of continent that looks real good to them. And, you know, like we talked about before the break, uh, that that idea stuck in their head of manifest destiny. The sort of practical version of that is like we should be C to C, right? Like we should be the whole continent. Mm. There are a lot of Americans at this point in time who are talking about the sort of natural final form of the United States being 
all of the Americas, right? Literally all of it under one umbrella. And, you know, obviously we're not going to get there, but like, that's the, when that's the extreme, like reining it back to just the continental U S as we know it now seems almost reasonable, right? Almost kind of. Yeah. But like, yeah, this, this expansion is bent is, I don't know. It, it doesn't come from anywhere other than this decision that, you know, they as a people are special to the exclusion of all others. Right. Mm. And it's going to start showing up in really, really specific, practical ways, um, starting with the uh, Mexican-American War. Kind of seems like a natural next step. Point, right. right. Yeah. Um, Mexico had been uh, become independent in 1821. So in that same wave as all the, the rest of Latin America. Right. And immediately found that it was having a lot of issues with indigenous resistance, especially in its sort of Northeast, which is essentially what is now Texas. Mm. Um, you know, there, there's a, there's a pretty significant chunk of time in the 19th century where, uh, indigenous peoples were very organized and very militarily active before, uh, the United States was well uh, established and had really kind of put all the legal stoppers on all of this stuff, right? Mm. So Mexico is running into the same issues. I mean, you know, this this territory, as much as we've talked about it, changing hands from, you know, Spain to France, back to Spain again, uh, then to the United States, you know, all of this stuff. This is this is the this is the traditional territory of a lot of nations who have existed for a long time before any of this stuff happened, right? right? And they're kind of going like, I don't I don't care who you say has a piece of paper saying what. This is our home. Oh, so yeah, totally. You know, it it becomes something that Mexico sees as like an internal problem, and they decide to deal with it by essentially uh, uh, splitting off a province known as Tejas that is where most of the the upset uh, the unrest is 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 occurring and sort of creating a special kind of uh extra constitutional rules around it to help them manage these these conflicts right now what's interesting is that as soon as this kind of less well-managed territory comes into place a bunch of americans start crossing the border and settling themselves just sort of making themselves at home. Right. And very quickly, the uh, the population of, of, of Texas becomes like white Anglo-Americans more than Spanish-speaking uh, settlers. Really? Like, even while it's still part of Mexico? Yeah. Well, there was very few people, uh, very few non-Indigenous people living in that territory. It right. didn't take much to right. tip those scales. Yeah. But the, the practical result of this is that you know, Mexico is independent in 1821. By 1836, Texas is declaring its independence. It is now an independent state. It is no longer part of Mexico, right? right. And this brings us back to uh, the question we asked in the first part of civil war, independence, right? Because Mexico refused to recognize Texas as independent. And not really a whole lot has actually happened in the way of like, military victories or defeats mm. to decide this texas has just said no we're not part of mexico we are our own republic right and so they're at this weird stalemate right and the united states is recognizing texas's independence mm -hmm. but mexico isn't and so what is texas exactly right um different european powers are recognizing different 
configurations depending on their personal interests, mm-hmm. but it's a really contentious uh, situation, right? Uh, now, many Texans saw this as a very precarious uh, situation, which it was, mm-hmm. and they felt that the best way to rid the whole situation of any ambiguity was to just join the United States, right? right? And so there, there's a lot of support for annexation to the U.S., but um, there's mixed support in the United States itself, mainly because by this period, the United States is really struggling with the question of uh, slavery and abolition. Mm. There's a bit of a stalemate happening here. There's a recognition that the southern states depend on slavery for their economic success. Um, There's also a growing abolitionist sentiment in the north. This is all going to obviously come to a head with with the Civil War, but this is a discussion that's happening long before the Civil War, right? And one of the compromises that they kind of work out to maintain this uneasy balance is the designation of different states as slave states or non-slave states, right? Right. And I'm sure a lot of this sounds familiar, but one of the issues is, well, when we add new states, are they slave states or no? Because oh, right. Right. If, if, if you're looking at states that have existed since the inception of the United States and they've always had slaves where it's kind of like, well, there's this grandfathered in sort of really cold calculus to the whole thing, right? Mm. But if you add a new state and no Americans live there and it's being kind of created from whole cloth, does that state get to hold slaves or not? Right. And the existing slave states would say yes. You know, if it's south of a certain point, which is how they determined it, uh, then yes, they should be able to own uh, slaves with the the hope that more slave states meant that a a larger majority in the in the house and in the senate would mean that they'd be able to maintain what they saw as their rights to to hold slaves for longer right, right it's a yeah. it's a political game in, in in the long run whereas abolitionists would say like well why are we creating new slave states if the goal is to not own human beings as property you know it's it's the kind of thing that now seems a little bit ridiculous, but is is a very real political uh, issue at the time, right? right? And so Texas is very clearly, if it was to become a state, very clearly a southern state. Mm-hmm. And abolitionists are not interested in admitting another slave state, especially with nothing to balance it out as a non-slave state. Right. Um, so it's, it's very, very hotly contested. There's also some concern about antagonizing Mexico because at this point in time, Mexico is massive, Right. And has just gone through a war of independence, so is potentially militarily ready. Haven't really tested it out. And the United States is still pretty small. Right. Easier not to provoke a war. Yeah, probably yeah. for the best. You'd, one <laughs> one would assume. Right. There are also a lot of Americans who do not care about this one bit. They don't mm-hmm. care. Mm-hmm. They don't care. They they The way they see it, because the the, the American Constitution is really unclear on how joining the United States or for that matter, leaving the United States works exactly from like a, a constitutional mechanics standpoint. Mm. And there are a lot of people who are saying, well, if they want to join the United States, let them join the United States. Like it's a, it's a, it's a federation. It's if they want to become one of our United States, that's fine. They can unite with us. And they just see it as kind of a win all, all around. Right. They also have absolutely no issue with pro, uh, provoking Mexico because as they see it, all of that territory should be American anyways. Mm. They don't deserve that. 
Right. America deserves that. As I just provoke them, get it over with. Why not? Yeah. We can take them. <laughs> like there, there is, there is a, a, an almost um, divine sense of, of right to this, this land, right? Mm. You know, God is on our side sort of thing. Uh, this shouldn't be an issue. Um, and this goes back all the way to pre, like, like pre-independence. Like there's this famous sermon given in Boston called the city on the hill. Mm. Uh, where where America is supposed to stand as a beacon of of righteousness and goodness to the rest of the world, and and, right. and this is something that's kind of carried through uh, the American psyche through throughout this whole period. Yeah, I mentioned the Federalist Papers earlier. Even in the uh, you know while the founding fathers are trying to determine what the United States looks like, you know what is it? Well, how does it act? What are its motivations as a nation? Alexander Hamilton uh, uh, advocates fairly strongly for an expansionist attitude that right. um, that the, the United States should grow. It should take up the continent. It should fill it with civilization. Right. And, and I suppose, I mean, from their point of view, if you are founding a new nation based on these high-minded ideals, mm. right? Why not let everybody have these high-minded ideals if they're so great? Oh, yeah. It's, yeah. it's very much like a... a kind of saccharine benevolence right? right like it's this idea and it depends largely on you know several myths about uh who exactly lives in the americas when they get there right right um it depends on a lot of very you know eurocentric views of civilization you know lots lots of lots of issues that we can spend all day <laughs> talking about but the point is they see it as a they see it as a gift to these indigenous mm. people to, you know, quote unquote, civilize them. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. you know, are, are kind of perplexed in a lot of ways as to why they're not lining up to be civilized, mm. right? They, they don't entirely understand it. They see it as a very paternalistic relationship, uh, one that needs to be imposed on people who are like children compared to them and all, all this kind of garbage. Right. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not necessarily a... a jingoistic expansion at all costs sort of thing we will defeat you know it, it's it's a it's a we need to welcome everyone into this enlightened society for mm -hmm. the good of humankind mm -hmm. and that almost makes it a little more insidious in certain ways like i find <laughs> that almost more creepy right not that the first is good but or like we we, we have to help you to be better like we are mm -hmm. better yeah as opposed to just a, a purely conquer and yeah 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 it's 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 yeah all of a sudden it's less mongol and it's more <laughs> you know anyways it, it, it's a very it's a very strange thing it's a very unique thing as well so all of this sort of comes to the to a head in the 1845 presidential elections where one james k polk is is elected president um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him at all. There's nope. a very good There Might Be Giants song about him. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I find Polk fascinating. I, I think he was a kind of a terrible man. But the thing that's really interesting about Polk to me is that he came in and he had some, you know, he, he had some experience in, in government, but he essentially came in and said, well, if you elect me president, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make Texas part of the union. Uh, I am going to found an independent treasury. I am going to lower tariffs on international trade, and I am going to finalize the purchase of the Oregon Territory mm -hmm. uh, in the Northwest, uh, thereby uh, completing the mission of stretching from sea to sea. Right. And people went, okay, sounds good. And he did all of that. He filled all of those promises, essentially, more mm -hmm. or less, in one term. And then he just didn't seek re-election because he had done all of the things that he said he was going to do. And then he died a couple of months later. Wow. It's kind of, it's just like, it's really weird. 
Yeah. It's just there's not a lot of politicians you hear kind of right just come in do what they said they do <laughs> leave and and then die i guess right the, the last part isn't strictly necessary it's just <laughs> it's just like the the finality of it all wow yeah. uh, well finishing accomplished yeah basically see you later <laughs> anyways he's he's the election though is is largely centered around what are we going to do about Texas? What are we going to do about Mexico? Right. And there's a lot of people who have a lot of concerns about this this expansion. You know, I don't mean to present the United States as like uniformly expansionistic. There are a lot of people who ha- who take issue with it. They mm-hmm. see they they even saw the um, the Louisiana purchase as kind of imperialist if you look at it from a certain point of view. Right. right. Like, why are we expanding? We are this little strip of territory on the eastern seaboard that's what we should be we should focus on developing this mm-hmm. and uh, you know anything else is is kind of beyond our mandate as an independent nation polk had no qualms about that whatsoever um he sent envoys to mexico and he said i would like to purchase california from you and they said uh I don't think we want to do that. And Polk said, I will give you $30 million for all of California, which is much bigger than just the state of California now, by the way. Right. It's much bigger. It's California. It's Nevada. It's uh, New Mexico, Utah, Colorado, uh, Arizona. Like, it's it's that whole, like... Right. And they're like, $30 million? Are you kidding? Absolutely not. <laughs> and so Polk went, okay, fine. And he sent... American troops into Texas, which remember the United States sees as an independent nation republic mm-hmm. that's being asked or, or that's asking the United States for annexation, right? And which Mexico sees as part of its own territory. Mm. The United States went to Mexico as part of that negotiation for uh, California and basically proposed the the Rio Grande as the southern border of the United States. Right. And so they went and they lined up a whole bunch of American troops on the Rio Grande. And Mexico went, no, that's our territory. Right. And they essentially provoked the Mexican troops into finally crossing the Rio Grande and like uh, there was a little skirmish north of the river and uh, I believe it was 11 American troops were killed and Polk went, well, that's war. You were on American <laughs> soil. You spilled American blood on American soil. War it is. Right. And Congress stepped right up and, and backed him up on this. And this is the beginning of the Spanish or the, the Mexican American war. It moves really quickly. Uh, the Mexican army is no match for the American army. It turns out they were, they had very similar levels of like, machinery or, or equipment rather mm-hmm. um you know the the mexican uh infantrymen were using like slightly outdated rifles but like so or, or muskets actually at the beginning but like so were some of the american troops right. it the, was like a massive technology imbalance not enough that it would make that much of a difference right. what did make a difference is that the mexican army was largely conscripted from peasants that were not terribly well paid mm. or reliably paid or well trained or you know all the things that make for a successful army uh while the u.s had been doing all of those things right it was pretty one-sided a lot of people would say later on that this war could only have gone as one-sided as it did in basically exactly this era much earlier and you would have been dealing with spanish troops right and much later and the uh, mexicans would have a much better trained army Mm. so it was kind of a good good timing for the americans yeah basically 
it goes quickly. Uh, by 1848, uh, Mexico is asking for peace. And as part of the terms for peace, uh, Mexico cedes uh, Texas to the United States. They sell California to the United States for $15 million instead Ooh, of 30 Discount. Discount. <laughs> uh-huh. And between those territory losses and something that's known as the Gadsden Purchase in 1853, they, they purchased a strip of land to run railroad through what was formerly Mexican territory. Um, this was 55% of Mexico's territory. Wow. Mexico is less than half the size it was before this war. That's huge. When you when you state it in those terms, man. Yeah. This territory is like the size of Western Europe. Right. It's 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 massive. Yeah. And then, you know, Pope wrapped up his presidency and moved on. <laughs> and, you know, it, it really opens up this period of American policy kind of leaning towards, I guess we were right on that manifest destiny thing, right? right. And and it, it's not just through, you know, official U.S. policy. It's through really unofficial things like uh, what's called filibustering. Filibusters were, I think mercenary is a reasonable word to use here. I see a lot of places where it's kind of like adventurers or like things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, soldiers of fortune, you know, whatever. They're, they're kind of trying to, to uh, neaten it up a little bit. But you have basically private American citizens who are pulling together informal armies, very, very small ones, and mm. just going into Latin America and trying to destabilize things in ways that would uh, allow the United States to gain territory or economic advantage or mm. what have you. And it's this weird, like, just to take it on yourself that way, right? Well, yeah, I was going to ask, are, the, are they going in at the request of the government or someone? Or they're just kind of like, what's up, let's go stir things up and see what happens? Mm. Yeah, I mean, little A, little B. Sometimes they're brought in at the request of governments uh, in certain countries oh, okay. uh, as like, we want you to help us out with this. Because, you know, keep in mind, we're, we're talking about Latin America as a fairly like monolithic thing or we're focusing on on Mexico. You know, in the, in the, in the wake of all of these wars of independence that kind of wrap up in the 1830s, there's all these new nations and each one is trying to figure out how to govern itself. Right. Right. And each one is doing it a little bit differently. And, and all of those years of war have really destabilized things. And just because they're independent now doesn't necessarily mean there's a lot of agreement on how to rule things. Right. Right. Yeah, totally. So there's a lot of tension. I mean, a lot of it could be basically any new nation that we're describing here, but there's a lot of tension between like uh, urban elites and and uh, rural kind of uh, peasants or, or previously uh, slaves or, you know, th- this idea of people who want to replicate the Spanish system, but independently and other people who want to set up like pure republics in mm. the, in, you know, sort of modeled after the United States. And like, there's all of these things that are being tried out at the same time. Right. Mm. And so when, you know, when the, when the U S is talking about the Monroe doctrine in 1823, some of them are going like, great, we have the support of a fairly strong, uh, nation in our kind of sphere of influence that can like look after us a little bit, you know, keep the Americans or keep the Europeans away. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the other ones are going like, I don't know about these guys. Like they seem a little not entirely sure here. This may not be a good thing for <laughs> us. This may be somebody who they want to keep Spain out because they want to have what Spain had. Right. And you know, with the, with the Mexican American war, that second group is kind of going, well, you know, 
we told you. Yeah. It's really a signal of how the United States is starting to see the rest of the Americas. Mm. So you get people. I, I, I want to talk about one specific because it's both like the most egregious version of it and also an example of just like how okay this was with the majority of Americans. A man named William Walker. Walker was a doctor, like a medical doctor, a lawyer, a journalist, and also a filibuster. Right. In 1854, he sets off to Nicaragua with uh, a troop of about 60 men. There's a civil war going on in Nicaragua. Now, he had previously been in Mexico trying to uh, uh, stir things up in uh, along the border, trying to destabilize things enough that the United States Army could come in and, you know pacify right um yeah he he may have committed some war crimes while there which this is 1853 like their definition was pretty strict and he was still brought up on charges wow now the act of filibustering was so popular and the and mexico was so unpopular that when he was uh when when he was charged in the united states it took a uh it took a jury seven minutes to acquit him of all charges so he got off scot-free for all of this right but yeah there was a there was some massacring you know as you do i guess when adventuring in mexico i don't know it's wild Yeah, yeah the fact that he walked free is is bizarre to me but anyways off he goes to nicaragua nicaragua is really unstable at this point in time it's seen as a really valuable portion of Central America, mostly because uh, even before Panama was being talked about for the canal, Nicaragua was being looked at. Mm. Uh, the reason for that is that even though it's like wider at that point, there's a giant lake in the middle of Nicaragua. So the idea was you can cut a canal to the lake, sail through the lake, and then cut another canal the rest of the way. Right. And that might be a better option because, yeah, we've been talking about getting ships from the Atlantic to the Pacific without going all the way south below South America for a very, for right. a very long time. Pretty popular topic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Walker was brought into Nicaragua on uh, behalf of the, uh, the more liberal faction uh, of a civil war that was happening in Nicaragua at that point. And when he got there and joined the fighting, uh, he, he got another, you know, hundred or so men involved under, under his command. Uh, instead of like acting on behalf of this liberal faction, he decided to just go ahead and conquer the capital himself. <laughs> Long story short, he conducts this sham election, right? Gets himself installed as the new president of Nicaragua. And this is the most important part because like, this could be just, you know, any guy going off. He gets recognized as the rightful president of Nicaragua by U.S. President Franklin Pierce. So the United States acknowledges and legitimizes this rule of a sham president wow. who is just some random doctor slash lawyer slash journalist who took a bunch of guys down to Nicaragua, took advantage of a civil war and overtook the capital. That's bananas. Wow. Yep, that really just happened. Like, just like a dude, he's just like, well, I'm going to go be president of Nicaragua now. Like, Yeah. Yeah. So, like I said, it's it's easily like the most bold and like extreme example of this. But bold, he's not... Bold is a good word. But, but he's not the only one doing this. Like right. Lots of people are doing this. And it's this blatant disregard for the autonomy of all of these nations that I find so interesting about filibustering. Right. Because... Who else 
who else goes, I think I'm going to be president of Nicaragua now. Who else does that? Like, even if they were, uh, even if they were doing mercenary work, even if they were hired on by a foreign government mm-hmm. to take part in a civil war, which is already questionable as all get out. But even in that case, who doesn't just like follow through and like follow orders for the person that hired them, install that person and then move on. Right. The idea of getting down there and going, I think both sides are wrong and I'm right. And then having the actual president of the United States say, this is fine. This is the rightful president of Nicaragua is just like, what? Wow. If I told you this story and it ended with like, and the United States disapproved of this and sent the Marines in to take him out, mm. it would be a lot more palatable because right. then it's just like one crazy guy yeah. and a bunch of crazy followers, I guess. <laughs> but it's not. It's it's a completely legitimized action. Wow. And it all ties back into this 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 Monroe Doctrine, right? right. This, this sense of like we can we can get ourselves involved in this hemisphere, and you see the the Monroe Doctrine evolving from we're going to keep America, we're going to keep Europeans out, to we can police this entire region. Mm-hmm. We have jurisdiction over this region, right? Which where that comes from exactly, other than a sense of self-assurance right Mm. because yeah nicaragua or certain parties within nicaragua invite walker in sure but what they did not invite in is like american intervention on a state level Mm -hmm. they hired a soldier not a new president right and that's a very, very different thing, right? Like the, the, the actions taken by a private citizen versus a, a government. Uh, yeah, you don't want to mess with that stuff, right? When, when Walker gets there, the first thing that he does as president uh, is start an Americanization process. He starts uh, forcing everyone to speak English. He starts making changes to the Constitution to more closely reflect an American system of government. Uh, Walker is not an abolitionist and decides to uh, model uh, Honduras after the slave states and including the ownership of slaves. Right. There's actually this wild thing that starts going on in the 1850s. It's it's called you're not going to believe me when I tell you this, but there's this there's this group called the Knights of the Golden Circle. Okay. This is real. I promise you. I'm not pulling one over on you right Continue. now. Continue. The Knights of the Golden Circle. And I mean, it's it's one of those things where it's like this definitely existed. How widespread it was is a little bit contested, but not that contested. Mm-hmm. Um, the Knights of the Golden Circle kind of saw the writing on the wall in terms of like how accepted uh, slavery was going to be in the North mm-hmm. and decided that the best way to combat that was to acquire territory in Central, South America, the Caribbean and the and the southern united states to achieve a plurality of slave states uh in the united states the golden circle being like if you take the gulf of mexico and kind of like connect it on the mm. other side using like the the north coast of south america right so they wanted to establish this chain of slave states uh throughout the gulf of mexico and in doing so hold enough political power to maintain uh, slavery within the United States. Right now, again, I know that sounds crazy, but like, like John Wilkes Booth, like the guy who shot Abraham Lincoln, mm-hmm. was a member. Like, this is like a real oh. actual thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. It sounds like it should be made up. It's right? not. I promise you, it's real. Um, so 
you know, Walker starts this whole Americanization process and it's you know, like, it doesn't take long for everybody else to be like, no, 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 this isn't going to work out. Right. right. So Costa Rica, Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, they all join forces to invade, uh, uh, Nicaragua to take him out. Basically he sees that this is not going to work out. He burns Granada to the ground, like completely raises it. Like Granada was like, destroyed wow and basically the only reason he got out of there uh with his head attached was that he convinced the u.s navy to come pick him up (laughs) and like he arrives back in the united states to a hero's welcome people think he's fantastic for pulling this off right now they start thinking he's a lot less fantastic after a little while because he starts like very publicly blaming the u.s navy for taking him out and basically saying like if they hadn't come along i could have i could have stayed president forever or whatever you know like i suppose you need a certain level of arrogance to go and install yourself as president of a of a foreign nation yeah absolutely absolutely (laughs) you do doesn't sound out of character yeah well he eventually returned back to central america where he was arrested and and uh executed so yeah he just there you go. <laughs> there you go. But again, as I said, Walker is not the only filibuster. There are many other Americans in this period who take it upon themselves to get themselves uh, embroiled in various conflicts uh, existing or manufactured in in Central America. Right. And it's not all these kind of uh, anti-abolitionists, uh, Knights of the Golden Circle types. It's not. It's a, a lot of them are just seeing themselves as having the right to go in there and to do these things right which is again just i i I struggle with it so hard there's also attempts to buy cuba from spain by these same knights of the golden circle before the civil war and it never really works out spain after it lost all of its other territory in latin america really clung on to cuba it was an economic powerhouse for them Mm -hmm. uh still even into the 19th century Slavery would exist in Cuba, uh, even past the United States. It would, it would exist there until the 1880s. But, you know, when Spain looked at Cuba, they looked at it very fondly. They saw it as another province of the country. They didn't necessarily see it as like just a, mm. uh, you know, just a just a colony. Whereas people in Cuba very much saw Spain as taking advantage of them. Right. And again, I'm saying this as though it's a really blanket thing. It's not necessarily. There are a lot of Cubans who were extremely loyal to the Spanish. Mm-hmm. But as the years go by, there are more and more attempts at independence on the part of Cuba. There's a a war that runs from 1868 to 1878, uh, which completely devalues the the Cuban economy in the process, but ends in Spanish victory. And, and, you know, Cuba ends up kind of destitute, Mm. but still part of Spain, not really sure what to do. You know, 90% of their exports are going to the United States. They're kind of like there are lots of people in Cuba basically asking for the U.S. to come help them out. It's known as the Cuba Libre movement. They want a a free Cuba, which is what that means. And the U.S. is kind of looking at it and where, you know, 50 years before they would have gone, you know, while our policy is to prevent further um, meddling but not to necessarily get involved in in current colonies. By the time you get to like the 1880s, 1890s, the U.S. is looking at that and going, this is basically our backyard and we've been policing it for a while now. Right. You know, why shouldn't we get involved? 
you know, there, there was, there was a little bit of, uh, a little bit, there was a lot of French involvement in Mexico in the 1860s, but it was in the middle of the, the civil war. So the United States couldn't really get involved. Mm -hmm. Uh, they actually in, installed a, an emperor in, in Mexico, Emperor Maximilian. Uh, he lasted about three years. He strangely enough got, uh, deposed the exact same year that the civil war ended and the U S could line troops up on the Mexican border to say, <laughs> yeah, maybe we don't want France in here. Right. You know, um, but but by this point in time, you know, the United States has just been through a, an economic depression. Uh, they're feeling the after effects of the Civil War. They're looking for something to kind of unite the country behind. And an external threat always works really well for that. Yeah. And they see a lot of themselves in Cuba. Right. They are seeing you know, just as with Texas, right? Like they saw Texas as this independence movement. They're breaking away from Mexico. They want to strike out on their own. They want to adopt American values. We want to help them out and mm -hmm. they step in with the Mexican American war. Now you look at Cuba and it's like, well, this is even more like what the American independence movement was like, right? Oh, totally. You're looking at a, a foreign power rotting from within, as far as they're concerned, across the Atlantic, and they're trying to uh, suck this colony dry without giving them their due. And you know, all Cuba wants is their freedom, and we should stick up for them, right? Right. All of this is really interesting in the light of the American Civil War, which you know, when we talk about it, we always call it a civil war, and that's mainly because it ends up as still one country afterwards, but it's not actually a civil war. If you define it properly, what happened there was a failed secession. Mm -hmm. The Confederate mm -hmm. States of America was set up as a separate country. Mm -hmm. It was an independence movement, right? They, they weren't fighting for control over the same country. They just wanted out basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which, uh, the rest of the United States basically said the constitution doesn't allow, right? You can join, but you can't leave. So, Okay. What makes an independence movement valid, mm -hmm. right? What, what what makes it okay to leave an oppressive power? Right. Uh, you know, it, it's it's this sort of thing that regular Americans are also wrestling with at this point in time, right? But it's a little bit harder when you're looking at Cuba because all you're seeing here is, number one, nothing of the Spanish side, right? Like you don't have that internal view of the whole situation. Mm -hmm. And number two, you're seeing a lot of benefits for yourself as an American to a free Cuba. Right. There's a lot of money going back and forth between you and Cuba right now. Maybe there could be more if there was no Spain involved. Yeah, totally. that would be that'd be nice. Why, why should Spain be involved? Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's the Americas. Get back to Europe. <laughs> Stupid Spain. <laughs> um, I think in in 1898, uh, at the beginning of this, this is going to be the the Spanish American War. But I think in 1898, as as uh, people in the United States are looking at Cuba, they're seeing a lot of themselves in this. And they're feeling a, a, an entitlement to involvement in Latin America. Mm -hmm. They've they've spent several decades feeling completely at ease with inserting themselves into the politics of these other countries. And a lot of times when people talk about the, the Spanish-American War, they'll point to some kind of aggravating factors as, as being reasons that the Americans get involved, specifically the sinking of the Maine. Uh, the, the USS Maine was a, a battleship that, due to basically popular sentiment, President McKinley was forced to dispatch to Havana Harbor. Mm -hmm. McKinley didn't want a military solution to all of this. He wanted to broker a, a diplomatic deal between Spain and Cuba, hopefully resulting in Cuban independence, but a, a, a non-military 
uh, solution nonetheless. Right. But the the vitriol among the general public was so high that he was worried about seeing being seen as you know not doing anything about it as being too weak. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so it was kind of like, okay, well, we'll send one uh, ship down to Havana. It will be there. It will appear threatening. It will protect American interests in Cuba and we can move on with the peace talks, which is what he actually wanted to get down to. Right. Uh, and then on the night of February 15th, 1895, the main exploded. 250 U.S. seamen were killed. To this day, there is disagreement over what exactly caused this explosion. Some people, the real question is, did something happen inside the ship that lit off its powder reserves, which is one of the earliest official explanations, you know, a coal from the the boiler, basically, Mm -hmm. um, managed to set off the the powder in there for, you know, cannons and whatnot. So so like an accident. So like an accident. Uh, Or was it a Spanish mine? Right. That blew it up from the outside. And even though the official version was, yes, this was an accident, um, the people seemed to think that this was clearly Spanish sabotage. Right. And at that point, there was very little coming back from uh, from warfare. At this point, people talk about William Randolph Hearst and uh, Joseph Pulitzer, who were both prominent journalists at this point in time, talk about something known as yellow journalism, which is this sort of like whipping up the masses, like exaggeration in journalism. Like Mm -hmm. uh, they would talk about how bad things were in Cuba and exaggerate details. There's that apocryphal quote to Hearst that was something along the the lines of you furnish me with the pictures, I'll furnish you with a war kind of thing. But... Yeah, that, that hasn't really been the the kind of mainstream consensus on the reason that the United States goes to war here for, for a while now. First of all, their papers didn't have much reach outside of New York, and, and people were angling for war all over the place. Mm-hmm. And second of all, you didn't really need the journalism for everybody to be this upset about everything. Right. Yeah, it exaggerated. It lied about lots of stuff. It was horrible journalism. But to blame the whole affair on on a couple of news stories like that is a little bit reductionist right in april congress gets together and passes a uh, uh an amendment to support cuba in its independence endeavors um <laughs> it's it very specifically just to kind of keep things on the up and up uh had a disclaimer in there uh that disavowed any intent to annex cuba so right. basically this is saying yes we can go to war uh no we cannot end with annexing Cuba into the United States. Mm-hmm. That is that is the one term of all of this. And yeah, uh, with that, the United States goes to war in Cuba, supporting the Cubans ostensibly and, and fighting the Spanish. And a lot of this, you know, starts off with with naval action destroying the Spanish fleet in the in the Caribbean. Uh, then you get a bunch of uh, uh, fighting on the on the ground. This is where you get like Teddy Roosevelt and his Rough Riders, you right. know, who are just like a bunch of a little bit older dudes who just really wanted a war, which is kind of weird. Um, uh, I believe he just described it as a splendid little war afterwards. Uh, you know, it, it lasts maybe 10 weeks. Right. Uh, everybody gets a lot of yellow fever. Um, but, but the United States ends up out on top. In the course of this war, the U.S. kind of loses perspective a little bit. And like, yeah, they invade Puerto Rico, which kind of makes some sense. It's not that far away. Want to make sure that the, you know, that Spain doesn't get another foothold in the Caribbean. That's a bit of a stalemate. But then they also decide that, well, there's a Pacific Spanish fleet in the Philippines, so we mm-hmm. should go take care of that. So they go 
take over the Philippines while they're at it. Right. They go to Guam, which, by the way, didn't even know there was a war on. Uh, they get <laughs> a, sh- a ship gets to Guam and it fires several like warning shots at the at the, the fort there. Right. And a boat rows out to them. And there's a couple of guys from the fort and they say, look, I, this is embarrassing, but like we have to apologize. We couldn't return uh, your salute because we're actually out of gunpowder right now. <laughs> and the U.S. Navy goes, uh, we're at war with you right now. So thanks for that tidbit. And they went, oh, no. And that was basically the end of the war in Guam. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyways, Guam's really far away from Cuba. <laughs> and when the war ends, it's kind of like, all right, it's December of 1898. It's been less than a year. We've been very successful at driving out a, an extremely anemic uh, old world power. 18, 1898 is not a good time to be a monarchy in, in Europe. This is, right. you know, we're, we're uh, 20 years out from the, from the first world war. Kind of give you a sense of how everybody's doing. Right. You know, because of that amendment, they couldn't keep Cuba, but what they did do was this 1901, uh, Platt amendment, which set a bunch of conditions for which the U S army or, or uh, the, the U S forces would leave Cuba to independence, which was a lot of things like, Cuba would agree to uh, allowing the United States to, you know, employ military force to keep peace in Cuba. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Cuba could never return to Spanish control and, you know, all sorts of little conditions. This is actually where uh, the United States gets control of Guantanamo Bay. Uh, I always wondered that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, This goes back to the Spanish-American War. There you go. There you go. And because there's no strict uh, prohibition in any of the Articles of War, they end up keeping Puerto Rico and Guam and the Philippines. Right. And in a century, we've gone from a little tiny country on uh, the east coast of North America, which really has very little chance of taking over anyone, to a country that stretches all of North America, coast to coast. And despite all of its supposedly anti-imperialist sentiments is actively getting themselves involved in military conflicts in other nations, right. uh, deciding political outcomes in other nations, holds territory on islands in the, in the Pacific that are thousands of miles away, uh, administrating those as territories. And it's kind of like, what happened here, guys? Right. This is a big change. And like, yeah, they're still kind of isolationist. And yes, the U.S. economy isn't, you know, at the level it's going to be post-World War II and everything. But like, I'm sorry, boys, but you're a you're a big power now. Right. Right. This is this is the new imperialism. Mm -hmm. And their their main playground is Latin America and all of these new nations that were, you know, a little little concerned, a little bit hopeful about this uh, level of protection that was being supposedly offered by the United States is now extremely concerned about what exactly are its intentions and how far is it willing to go. Interesting how sentiments and and attitudes can change that much in a few generations. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's completely unrecognizable. I, I, you know, at this point it's always kind of a, what happens if you pull, you know, one of those uh, signatories of the, 
Declaration of Independence and mm-hmm. plop them into 1898. Like, what do they think of the what do they think of the Union at this point? Right. I, I'm sure some of them would be absolutely thrilled with its success. I'm sure others would be just absolutely horrified with the uh, the the changes and concessions that have been made. You know, it's 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 hard to project that onto you know dead people, but <laughs> totally, yeah. But, but you know what I mean? It's 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 interesting uh, as as a thought experiment to go, like, yeah. What do they what do they think of this whole thing? Right. And what's more, it's kind of like okay, yeah. So a small Caribbean nation, I, I get that. I get how they're getting involved. I get how they have concerns about Haiti for very selfish reasons. It's like if you're down in say, I don't know, Colombia or Peru or Chile, like what are you? What are you thinking about right now? Right. How worried are you right now? Do you do do you want to trade with the United States and make it stronger economically? Do you want to risk antagonizing the United States by not trading with them? Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden there's this very strong imbalance of powers, right? An imbalance of intents. Because yeah, a lot of these places are dealing with civil wars, with uh kind of growing pains of new nations, things like that. But if every time things get slightly less stable, somebody from the United States is willing to insert themselves into that instability for American benefit. Yeah. Like how much can you really progress? How much change are you willing to risk? How much is the status quo more important due to its inherent stability simply as a defensive measure? Right. It's it's a really odd dynamic at this point. So I think this is a good place to leave it today because it really sets up the 20th century very, very, very nicely. Right. Um, a lot of these themes are going to come back when we, uh, when we come back next time. Uh, and we can start talking about just how willing the United States is to, to insert themselves. We're going to talk about American business ventures in, the, in, in Latin America. We're going to talk about, you know, straight state-backed coups. Like this is, as I said at the, at the outset... This is all just kind of verifiable fact. This is all stuff they did. And uh, it all really comes out of the things we set up today. So mm-hmm. uh, thoughts on the first half? Any any comments, any questions so far? It was a lot broader than I was expecting. Mm, yeah. And and filled in a lot of, of gaps of my own knowledge of the, the history of kind of mm. North and South America. You know, the, the whole Americas. Mm-hmm. That's good. Yeah, yeah. I think I think a lot of times we'll talk about, you know, American history and it's kind yeah. of like, yeah, it's it's not as separate as we'd like to make it totally. to be. That's yeah. not how that works. Yeah. So, no, that's, that's good. I'm glad we could fill a few things in and I'm sure we'll do our best to do the same next time when you come back. Uh, looking forward to it. Manifest Destiny and the Monroe Doctrine played an outsized role in the shift in U.S. policy toward Latin America over the course of the 19th century. What began as an isolationist, anti-imperialist protectionism quickly slipped into a perceived right to extranational policing. Next time on HI101, we'll see how first exploitative business interests and then the values of the Cold War increased these interventionist policies even further. Since HI101's format can lead to some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post there for each episode. For example, in this episode, I realized while editing it that I made it sound as though all indigenous Latin Americans had been assimilated by the Spanish Empire. That's not true at all, as many as 50 million people in Latin America are indigenous, many of whom carry on the languages and cultures that existed before European contact. That correction and more are on the site. If there are any errors I've missed there, please let me know so I can add them.
you can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. If you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash hi101 to make a monthly pledge, or paypal.me slash hi101 for a single donation. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your interest, take a look around. I guarantee you there's plenty of interesting information out there that we didn't cover. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.